It's the Morgan Evans More or Less Pickleball podcast coming at you in three, two, one, boom. Rules are meant to be broken. A paraphrasing from Douglas MacArthur that, let's be honest, has never made a lot of sense. Many would argue, in fact, that it's the exact opposite of why they exist. Remember that documentary Lord of the Flies? Huh? Those kids needed boundaries. Piggy didn't deserve to die. They needed a parent. My guest today is that parent, watching over the chaos and the kitchen. Please welcome Chairman of the USA Pickleball Rules Committee and the Director of Officiating of USA Pickleball, Mr. Mark Pfeiffer. Mark, how you doing, mate? Hello, morning. Great. Good to hear your voice. We haven't seen much of you lately. Yes, no, it's, it's been a little while, but um, I'm getting back on the horse soon. Don't you worry. All right. Well, good. Well, good. The game misses you. Oh, you're very kind. So, you are the main man, the, uh, the chairman of the officiating committee and the director of rules. I'm sure there's a, a much more elaborate way to say it, but essentially, you're the one that uh, players either fear the most or love the most, depending on which side of the line call they are. I don't know there's a whole lot of love for referees, but there's a lot of friends out there, so I guess that works. <laughs> yeah, they, they say the sign of a great referee is uh, when you never really hear their name and they never become famous. Exactly. Which means that it's kind of a thankless task. How did you get into it? Well, it was kind of an easy transition. It was like most referees. I played at Mellow Bishop in Oceanside, California, and we had a couple of small tournaments at the time that you might be familiar with, I'm not sure. One was called May Mayhem, another one was March Madness. And they were very popular early on in the 2009, 2010 timeframe and built kind of a reputation locally as being really well-run tournaments and mm. sanctioned by USAPA at the time. And I uh, came onto the scene as a pickleball player first, obviously, before I was a referee. And I'm just like anybody else, I'm playing in this tournament. I hear the the call that nobody likes to hear, any available referees, please come to the referee desk. So I said, well, heck, how hard can this be, right? <laughs> so I showed up and somebody gave me a score sheet and a pen and said, go do it. So I go out there and I can keep score, what the heck? So I get out there and I'm, of course I'm circling instead of doing the slashes and all that kind of stuff. I had no idea what I was doing. But I got through the game and something happened on the court. This is a women's doubles match. It's kind of fun. I still remember it like it was yesterday. And we couldn't figure out what to do when somebody was out of position and another serve had already occurred. So I tried to apply, you know, tennis rules from 22 years ago. And between the five of us, the four ladies and myself, we came up with a, a solution that we applied. Then I find out later on reading the rule book after the match was over that I was completely wrong. Aww. And I said, that's the last time that's happening. And so that started a whole study of the rule book. And then how do you become a, a certified, we're going to be a referee, I may as well be a certified referee. So that kind of started me down the path there. At the time, this was 2017, there was no training program, referee training program in California or uh, no certified referee. So we kind of started the whole certified referee program in California. That's fantastic. So roughly uh, how many certified refs do we have in the game at the moment? Uh, total, we have about 200 certified refs around the country and in Canada. Uh, right now, we're just the U.S. And, and Canadians 
are in the certified ref program. But there's interest uh, around the world. I just got the first interest from New Zealand, Australia. Oh, wow. We've got some referee programs there, but they don't have a certified program yet. And so the IFP is trying to fill that gap, and I'm going to get involved in helping mm. them. Okay. How many kind of refs do you think the game needs to basically expand as well as it could in the sense that obviously for a sanctioned tournament, you can have medal match only refs, but you know we all like to go to a tournament knowing that um, there's going to be no real chance for foul play, therefore refs on every match. Is there a kind of a, a ballpark number you think would get the job done? Uh, that's tough because it depends on where the tournaments are located. In Arizona, there's a really good chance that you're going to get enough for fully sanctioned a tournament. If you're in California and it's big nationals, you're going to get a fully sanctioned tournament. By the way, I should say that you asked about certified refs is 200, but total refs, level one, level two certified, is north of 400. Oh, great. So that level one, level two, that's our pipeline into becoming certified referees. So, I mean, it's not a big surprise when I tell you Florida – Arizona, California, Utah, uh, those uh, Nevada, those states, because of their location, have uh, a very good chance of having a fully sanctioned term, and enough referees will show. Mm. Of course, uh, referees are just like players. You know, there's a cost involved in that, and yeah. most referees don't enjoy the opportunity to lose money while they're refereeing. But uh, if there are host housing and that kind of stuff, it certainly helps. Uh, as you can imagine, yeah. just like as a player. For sure. I think that the common perception of the sport is it's an incredibly easy game to play. And one might be forgiven to be led to believe that officiating the game is also simple, but I think it's anything but that. Have you attempted to officiate any other sports and how do they compare if so? I was a basketball referee back in the day. Basketball's got some very, to me, similarities here in terms of your Reaction time between what you see and how you have to apply the rules very quick in basketball, just mm. like it is here. Uh, so I see really strong similarities there. So the people who can respond and kind of capture the rule that applies to what I just saw on the court are some of our best referees. You got to be able to do that recall pretty quickly, and that comes with experience. So that's why we put this level one, level two program in place. But for me, basketball is probably a very similar sport in that regard. Right. Is that based on kind of the pace of the game, how quickly exactly. things are happening, and how many kind of moving parts you, you sort of have to monitor at one time? Absolutely. But obviously the big difference in basketball, you got typically two other people that are on the court with you. Yeah. Ten people. Here you got uh, at most four and you're pretty much alone unless you get into the metal matches and you've got a, a second ref on the other side of that post. Yeah, no, it's... All you quick guys that have all these Ernie moves that we got to watch. <laughs> oh, I, I'm not a big Ernie person. I, I'm always deathly afraid when I play Tyler Long. He, he's <laughs> way too good at that. He's got a 76-inch okay. reach. It's too big. What a leapfrog he is. Yeah, It's crazy. He's tough, he's tough to watch. Yeah. <laughs> so now, obviously, referees, depending on the tournament and their level, they get paid a certain amount. Although, you know, when I do see these figures, it seems woefully low. Let's wind forward the clock 50 years. What do you think a ref will be making, you know, if they choose to ref 10 games in a day? Right now, I'm not sure too many players looking at the pay for a, a certified referee and thinking, you know what, that's that's worth getting into that. I can handle being on my feet for that long and having some very difficult decisions to make. 
ones that could affect the livelihood of professional players. Would you agree that the reimbursement needs to increase? Yes, it's part of the, but it's part of the evolution of the game. You know, uh, three years ago when I started this, you didn't get paid anything. You did it to give back to the sport. And over the last three years, we've gone from nothing to $5 a match for certified refs to seven, now we're at 10 and 15 for certain medal matches. So it's, it's evolving just like the game is. And I, I think there'll come a time, I don't think it'll be 50 years, I think it'll be much shorter than that, where you'll have a uh, top-level uh, series of referees who have been requested by either tournament directors or tournament operators, and they'll be paid a daily rate to come in to do however match, many matches they can fit in. Mm. And then part of that daily rate would include some kind of per diem for their cost of coming to the tournament. So I, I do think that's a strong possibility. So I, I think that's, that'll match up very similar to what you see in the highest levels of tennis. Yeah, We're not there yet, but I can certainly see when we could get there. Well, I think one of the nice evolutions that we're seeing in the certified ref ranks that help in this regard, I think, is that uh, we're seeing a younger individual get interested in becoming a referee, which I think the demographics of the top-level players and the referees, there's a mismatch there age-wise, right, demographics. And I think you'll see over the next 10 years some of the closing of that gap as well, which I think would be good for the game. Yeah, that'll be great for the game. And one of the more endearing sights I saw in uh, 2019, I think it was, was Anna Lee Waters, I think, at the Texas Open. Oh, who, yeah, yeah who had finished her day and, you know, she was out there refereeing, putting her hand up. Isn't that great? That's amazing. Yeah, that was great. (laughs) And when she does that, she's a role model for other young women, other young young men to pick up the school and go to the world. For sure. And I had a thought just while we were talking, um, perhaps until the average ref can make a living doing that, maybe they should peg the referee wage to the total payout for the tournament. So if it's a $25,000 tournament, then you know ten dollars a match. If it's a fifty thousand dollar tournament, twenty, and so on and so forth. If there was a kind of a written rule regarding that, it might help you know sway the the mind of a would be referee. What do you think? Yeah, I think what's really at play here, though, is supply and demand, just like anything else. If the supply of referees is is large, then there's no real requirement to pay a lot. So that's when you see the $10, $7, matches. When demand for the referees goes up, and then sometimes you have to pay more to get them there. And so I think we're beginning to see elements of that pop up in different tournaments because the pro tournament with the advent of the PPA, the APP tours now, there are a lot of, lot of pro matches out there to referee. And I think uh, what you're going to see over the next uh, two to three years is a gradually increased uh, referee pay to make sure that there are good referees mm. for those tours and those two operators. But right now, the USA Pickleball Association, we have you know, recommended guidelines for referee pay for the sanctioned tournament director out there, but there's no requirement that anybody has to follow that. But most sanctioned tournaments do. I anticipate I'll be the head referee of the National Indoor Tournament and Nationals in Indian Wells and I anticipate USA, those are the two tournaments that USA Pickleball operates. And so we have some influence over what the referee pay rate will be in those tournaments. And beginning in 2018, we started to set the standard for referee pay. And most sanctioned tournament directors kind of follow what happens at nationals. Mm, so that's good. I think in, two, in 2021, 
it'll be interesting to see. I, I, we've already got some preliminary plans for the National Indoor and for Indian Wells and what we want the referee pay to be. We'll see. Uh, Excellent. How many other tour operators kind of pick up on that? Yeah, good. I mean, it's not going to be long before the cream really rises to the top and everyone has a good feeling of who the kind of top 10 referees, top 20 referees perhaps are. And, you know, hopefully there's kind of almost a level of competitiveness, just like in the sport itself, whereby, you know, someone wants to be thought of as one of the best refs out there. And it kind of inspires everyone else who's who's doing it to you know, lift their game. So I'm sure when you walk yeah. around the grounds, you know, you see great refereeing and you see some other stuff. Exactly. Exactly. I'm going to tell you, not many people know this, not obviously the certified refs who went to nationals in 19 know this, but at the time, we had nine evaluators, and they're the ones that actually designate someone who's a level two to be worthy of wearing the white shirt and become a certified referee. We had the nine evaluators, but I think we had seven of the nine there at Nationals, and uh, they did a, an observation of every certified referee at Nationals, and that was part of the input into who I picked to go on center court at Nationals. Ah. So there is a... I'm not saying there's a pecking order, but there's a very clear, definable line between the very top referees and really good referees. So I anticipate we'll see some of that as well in yeah. 2021 nationals. You, you can tell who the better referees are. You just pay attention to who's on center court at nationals. That's pretty <laughs> that's true. Right? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I feel like it was only a couple of years ago where the players thought, well, if, if our ref has a last name that is Frezzo, then yeah, there's a pretty good chance that they know what they're doing. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, the Fresnos have been role models for many, many referees, and the, the overall referee program is much, much better because of Marsha and Byron and what they brought to the referee yeah. court. <laughs> I've always wanted to ask Byron if he knows that Marsha is better than him. <laughs> I'm sure there's a little private competition between the two of them. Uh, it's, it's fun. I, I'm, I'm very good friends with both of them, obviously. And it's fun being around the two of them because they like to kid each other and they like <laughs> to argue rules with each other. It's, it's, it's actually very cute. So. I'm sure the, the dinner table conversation is electric. Exactly. Yeah. I'm going to pause it there just briefly with Mark for one of my new segments called One and a Half Cents. Today I want to talk about rules. Rules are not static, they evolve. And what often causes them to evolve are the rule breakers. Did the game need Jeff Warnick to throw a paddle the length of a football field before a code of conduct was drawn up? Eh, maybe not, but it was a hell of a throw. I think the important thing is that while they do serve to protect the status quo, they cannot stand in the way of innovation. They can't stand in the way of a good top spin serve, I know that much. After all, a rule is not a law, they are not facts, they are theories, and any theory is based on the available information at the time. It therefore stands to reason that as the times change, rules change. Folks, we all know at times they are a-changing, and some of these new rule changes are breaking the internet with controversy. Cut them a little slack, people. Put your emojis down for a second. In my humble but microphoned opinion, the most important thing is to understand the purpose behind a rule. The new let's serve rule combats an abuse of a previous rule that was used in a manner unbefitting to the spirit of the game. The new drop serve rule helps to make the game even more inclusive, 
it's not there to give people an unfair advantage. If you understand the purpose as opposed to blindly following rules, then you won't just be someone who doesn't violate them. You'll be someone who is known for their sportsmanship. That's just good for the game. All right, that's enough of the third degree. Let's head back over to Mark. So tell me, what is the process of making a new rule? Just switching tact a little bit here. You know, I'm sure it's more than just a suggestion box at a tournament. How does it come to be? There's a couple of obviously big rule changes in 2021 that we will get to. But just briefly, can you give us a a picture of how they come to be? Yeah, there's a couple ways that a rule suggestion can get attention. One is on the USA Pickleball website, there's a, you want to get a hold of the rules committee, you can send them an email. Well, that comes to my inbox. And so I oftentimes will get, hey, here's an idea for you kind of thing. I get personal emails with ideas. Oh, fun. By the way, there's another guy by the name of Don Stanley. Really yeah, good friend. Good old Don. As well. And uh, he's got very close connections. So those, a lot of rule ideas will come to either him or to me. Uh, but he and I both, and this might surprise you and others listening in, he and I both spend a lot of time on social media. And I don't mind telling you this. We pay a lot of attention to what are the rules that are causing consternation with players. Huh. What interpretation are they coming up with that we never thought was able to be interpreted by this rule? Mm. And so we make notes of those, and uh, I collect the master file. And I have a file that I put together, and then at uh, the right time, usually is in the uh, end of May, early June timeframe, we start off the cycle for the next year. So what's been the process the last two years is going to be modified a little bit this coming year is uh, those changes. And you know, they can number this year, there were well over 100 emails or ideas that, that were collected that I had in this file. And I send those all to Don. Don then puts together what we have referred to as a rule submission committee. Uh, we keep that very quiet because we don't want anybody lobbying who's on the rule submission committee. Each year it's been a different group of people. And the reason for that is I'm firmly committed that, uh, and believe that the more people that are involved in the process, the, the wider the acceptance and ownership of the program for rules and rulemaking will be. Mm-hmm. So the five or six that were on the rules commission committee in 2019 were different than were on the committee this year. But they go through all those rule changes, and they have a very important role to play. They take a look and say, well, you know, this one, uh, this, this is either way too hard, way out of the scope right now, and uh, this only applies to, you know, one or two people in the country. We're not going to change a rule just for one or two people. Kind of stuff. So they do a very good process of vetting each one of those rule ideas. They study them independently, and they come back and they vote independently of each other, and uh, they vote on a one through 10 scale, and anything with a five or greater is what then goes forward for consideration by the rules committee. So it's not that the other 80 or nine rules don't go forward. Uh, they do. They just don't get processed through and be rewritten by Don and myself. He and I take personal ownership of those that come out of the rules submission committee. And we'll write the rule so that it's presentable to the rules committee and to the USA Board of Directors, USA Pickleball Board of Directors. So Uh once we get it in a condition that it's readable, this is when we bring back the individual who suggested the rule change. We'll ask them to help draft the rule so they, again, become a part of the process as well. That's great. And uh, so... 
Then it goes to the rules committee, uh, the five member rules committee, whether it passes the rules committee or not, all of them, including the ones that didn't pass muster with the rules submission committee, go to the board. So the board gets to see every single one of the rules that the rules submission committee looked at. And they have the final say on whether something becomes a rule or not, the USA Pickleball Board. What's going to change for next year is that rules submission committee is actually going to be the IFP rules committee. Okay. It would have been involved this year. Unfortunately, they didn't get commissioned and put together until too late in the process, but firmly committed that the international community, right now we have IFP rules committee members from Singapore, the Philippines, United Kingdom, Canada, and the United States, that uh, IFP rules committee will be the rules submission committee doing the voting and the vetting up front for the 2022 rule book revision. Well, that's fantastic. And I think it's going even further to validate the sport as indeed a legitimate and fast-growing sport as opposed to you know a game that people play in their backyard. So it sounds to me like there is a very serious and a very official process. And it's not just a couple of blokes thinking, you know, let's try the drop serve. Let's give it a go. No, no. <laughs> you know, I've written a couple of articles about this process and I talk about, you know, this is not a bunch of old white men's, you know, smoking cigars in some back room in Chicago, putting together rules. No, this is a very kind of formal process to it. It takes a long time to do it, to do it right. And as I said, the more people that we can get involved in this, the greater the ownership will be. So that's been our objective in the last two years anyway. Well, it sounds like we're in safe hands. Good man. Much appreciated. So let's talk a little bit about a couple of the the major rule changes in 2021, if you don't mind. Sure. Obviously, the, the standout ones that are getting a lot of buzz are the changes to the serve. Firstly, it will be legal for the ball to contact the net as long as it still passes the kitchen line. Right. You know, tell me a little bit about what was the main sort of rationale behind that particular rule change? It's easy to take that one in isolation, but we have to look at what has happened over the last two years. So again, this is just an evolution of what we've been trying to do the last two years. So the Rules Committee has three primary objectives. One is to maintain the integrity of the game. So if it doesn't maintain the integrity of the game, we don't have any business you know, touching it. Uh, the second thing is what can we do to make sure that the game is either easier to learn, more fun to play. We take a very close look at what could we do in that realm. And then the third one, obviously, is whether or not we have conflicts between players and referees. So it doesn't enhance the game very much or the player experience if we've got conflicts in the rules mm. that causes conflicts on the court. Mm. So over the last two years, we've done a lot of things to kind of address those kinds of issues. And this is just the latest one. Now, so what are we talking about? All right, well, we're talking about something that may very well, and I'll readily admit, some of the rules committee readily admit, this may not be the biggest issue out there today but we don't want it to become one right. as the stakes in the game increase. And we can debate this, and I'm sure I'm not going to debate both sides of this argument, as you can imagine. But the idea here is we don't, as the stakes in the game get bigger, whether it's the pros and the, and the money in the game, or whether for the, the player you know, at the 3.5 level who's vying for a golden ticket to nationals, the stakes in the game are going up if you play in a tournament. And so I don't think anybody will disagree that sometimes our decision-making process gets clouded 
or changes as the stakes in the game go up. Mm. What am I talking about? I'm talking about, heck, if you're up 10-2, that ball has one look. You can look at the ball that lands, and you can say, well, that ball is clearly in. Yeah. You know? But if you're at 10-9, guess what? That ball is going to look different to you. It's <laughs> normal human behavior, right? For sure. Anyway, so this, uh, this rule change was reflective of the very strong potential that could occur in the future where you get an ace on me as a serve, and I said, that is a let. All right? Yeah. There's no recourse. It's a replay. It could have been a match point service ace on your part, and mm. I, I can just say, hey, sorry, that was a let. Now, does it happen very often? No, it doesn't, thank goodness, because we have good sportsmanship in the game of pickleball. But it was easy to see where that could become a conflict between players. And already had, quite frankly. And, you know, Steve Peranto was very clear on this. He said, you know, this kind of stuff, it's in the document, in the write-up, the change document. Uh, he said, you know, this is already happening in our sport, unfortunately. This let-serve change completely eliminates any such conflict. And just play the ball. So that's uh, kind of the background behind that is to eliminate conflicts between players and players and players and referees and to maintain the integrity of the game so you can't have inadvertent cheating if you will yeah no for sure and i think obviously it's also going to speed up the game a little bit i mean it's not going to be wild amounts but it will speed things up slightly and i think it'll add a an element of luck to the game as well when it is a crucial moment and a good serve hits the net and pops up a little bit clears the line you know that's something that could you know change the outcome of the game and but i think obviously it you know, works for both sides. So it's going to be a fun one to see. Some people I, th I think out there are unaware that tennis has been doing this for quite some time. I, mean, I think it first started coming into play around 2013 as a kind of an experimental rule, but now is adopted in a, a bunch of circles, you know, typically not at the Wimbledon final, but I believe college tennis and a few other ITF sanctioned tennis bodies utilize it in professional tennis as well so it's not an isolated incident so to speak yeah but you're not going to hear me mention tennis <laughs> <laughs> fair enough as a chairman of the rules committee i don't i don't talk about tennis and uh, racquetball and badminton i'm not i'm forbidden talking about those sports because <laughs> we have to create rules for our sport and i get hammered every time i mention another sport you can do it I'll let you do it. Fair enough. <laughs> I suppose everybody kind of looks to find something that they can relate to. Exactly. Uh, and more it's so. And it's, yeah. tennis is the obvious one for pickleball. But I understand that you don't want to be seen as stepping on the shoulders of giants to make up the rules as you go along. It needs to be, you know, forging your own path. And we appreciate that. So the other big rule change, obviously, is now the drop serve, the option for a player to be able to drop a ball unaided and contact the ball after it has bounced, with some of the contact rules now being out of play. Specifically, I think the idea that the paddle has to be coming on an upward motion at contact, is that correct? Correct. The three elements that we've all learned in uh, pickleball in, in our serve, the, the upward arc at point of contact, the paddle head can't be below the, the wrist joint, and the ball must be served below the waist. Those three elements of the serve don't apply if one employs the drop serve. The drop serve is a voluntary rule, it's an optional rule, it's not a requirement. Mm. And that's, there's some misinformation out there that the drop serve is replacing everybody's normal serve, which is not the case. In fact, I just had an interesting email this morning where somebody was all up in arms and 
didn't realize it was optional. Forget everything I said in the last three emails. <laughs> so, <laughs> so. I don't envy your inbox. I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been uh, it's been fun at least the last two weeks or so. Yeah. So the drop serve uh, was really designed to make it easier for beginners. So you know we often get there's a real tension in rule space and, and rule crafting. You know, we, are we writing rules for just tournament players and pros? Or are we writing rules for rec players as well? And it's a very valid criticism and very valid argument that a lot of rec players that don't play tournaments have. You know, these rules look like they're mostly, you know, we're talking about technical fouls and warnings and, you know, that kind of stuff. They don't really apply to them. But this is a rule that was really generated to help the rec player because it's ostensibly easier to learn if you drop the ball and then make a stroke just like any other ground stroke. Now you're your normal forehand or backhand ground stroke can be used in a serve application. So you don't have to learn a whole brand new way of hitting the ball out of your hand. So that it was really designed to be easier for beginners to learn how to serve. Okay. But it's also got elements of uh, it's, it's easier from a referee standpoint as well. You know, we don't have to look for all three of those elements, which I'll admit, when you're trying to look at all three elements at the same time, you're trying to look at the feet placement of the server. That's tough for a referee to, to kind of grasp all that at one time on a split second because everything takes place at contact. So, do you? I'm sure you've tried the serve and have formed an opinion in terms of its effectiveness. Do you feel that it is something that tournament players will actually utilize? That's the real unknown here, right? And that's why it's a provisional serve. That means we're going to take a look at this thing. Uh, at least a year, if not earlier than that, if we, if we start having some unintended consequences, we can turn this off pretty quickly. But I think it's important to give it a fair shot, see what happens, because uh, like I said, from a beginner standpoint, it make, make it easier to learn. And it's also advantageous to those people who have the yips. And I've seen this person, mm. not me, but a very dear friend of mine uh, had the yips. And I said, hey, look, you know, in a couple of months, we're going to have this drop here. Why don't you try it? And it's like, whoa, can we do this now? Can I use this now? <laughs> So, I mean, that's a very limited sample set. You know, there's a lot of YouTube videos now being put together. I've seen a couple of them out there of people trying this serve. And, uh, yeah, you can put a lot of spin on the serve. You can, you know, make it move left and right. But, Morgan, you and I both know you can do that. You personally can do that now. Yeah. And you're accomplished enough. If you're at a four-old level and above, and you probably see this all the time, you can put side spin on the ball. Yeah, easily. It's a little difficult to put backspin on the ball and hit it with an upward arc, but yeah. spinning is not going to be different because of this. There'll be certain kinds of spin. If you can chop this thing with a backhand or forehand and and make it stop on a dime, yeah, now that that may change some elements of the game. Yeah, but I think it'll, what will be interesting to me is the accuracy. I mean, it looks really cool on YouTube video right now, but whether or not somebody's actually going to use it in a you know, a championship format in a tournament? I don't know. I don't know whether the accuracy will be there. I'm going to give it a go and see what kind of changes I see in the effectiveness of it. Yeah. I'm curious. I think you've probably seen my particular serve at some point. Sure. It's a ball toss that I'm clicking my fingers around the ball, imparting a lot of topspin as the ball comes up and then... Yeah, you're very unique. I don't know. I don't have anybody that doesn't like you. But, you know. <laughs> well, I've been trying to teach people, but it seems um, seems tricky. <laughs> Has And this is totally self-serving, but has that ever been a a topic of conversation for future rule changes? Am I still going to be able to do this for a while? Because I am a one-trick, I'm basically a one-trick pony here. So if you you take that away, then I'm I'm in trouble. 
No, no, no. That, no, you can still hit it out of your hand just like any, you know, just like you've always done. So there's, there's, there's nothing in this rule that would invalidate what you've been doing, what you've done. For sure. Okay. And I didn't think there was going to be in this one. I was just curious if ever it uh, has come up in the committee conversation, um, the idea of throwing the ball quite high and hitting it, obviously, before it bounces, whether I spin it or not. No, as long as when you make contact with the ball, all three of those elements are in place, you're fine. If Beautiful. you toss it up and then you let it drop, you can't use the drop serve. You're still okay. on 10 second clock. You'd have to pick the ball up. And oh, yes. Yes. You can't use the drop serve if you throw it up. Okay. So it's all definitely unaided, but you can raise your hand as high as possible and drop it. Yes. So you, uh, you can't have Jeff Warnick drop it for you. <laughs> but you, <laughs> but you can drop it. Yourself. Fair enough. And I assume I can't jump up in the air and then drop it to get a higher bounce, right? That would seem like a lot of work anyway, but... There's nothing right now that's... Well, let's see. When you make... Comp, yeah, there's nothing right now that says you can't jump up in the air, but... Okay. But, you know, I'll tell you, there's a lot of margin. because uh, <laughs> I've, I've actually done some study. We did some engineering studies on this. And we can say, look, if you drop this from an unaided height, there's absolutely no way it'll bounce above your waist as long as you're mm. standing. Now, if you want to crouch down, you can you can stretch the limits there. But if you jump up, you know, that's an unaided height. You can see what you can get out of it. But for me to get into my waist, I had to drop it from 15 feet. Ooh, okay. All right. Well, even Jeff Warnick's not doing that, so. Exactly, yeah. We're going to hold it there just quickly with Mark for a brief word from our sponsor, Coach Me Pickleball. Practice makes perfect, right? My name is Morgan Evans, and I have to tell you that practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes progress. That's why we've created Coach Me Pickleball. At Coach Me Pickleball, you'll find an extensive and growing library of lessons on topics covering every aspect of pickleball for every level of player. For one small monthly fee, you'll get access to every video in our library with new content added every month. Check out coachmepickleball.com to sign up for a free seven-day membership. All right. As always, sounds like good advice. Let's head back over to Mark. So one of the other rule changes I read that people may not be too worried about, but that uh, the whole waist being classed as navel height is being removed, and now it's just waist height to take away the ambiguity in terms of trying to figure out where everybody's navel is. <laughs> <laughs> You're the only person that's picked up on this. I'm, I'm proud of you. Well done, Morgan. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's another one of those conflicts that was in the rules and created potential controversy between players or between players and referees and said, why are we doing this? Let's just pick one and go with it. And so that's what we did. Good man. All right. Well, Mark, well, actually, before I forget, you, you mentioned engineering. And uh, the word around the campfire was that you were a officer in a nuclear submarine. And I think anyone who has ever watched that legendary documentary, The Hunt for Red October, you know, <laughs> looked at the late, great Sean Connery and thought that man would make a hell of a pickleball referee. <laughs> just, just out of well, interest. Well, <laughs> his presence, his voice, his presence. Yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah. No one yeah. would disagree with that man. Just out of interest. When and where was this? Oh, this is you know right out of college. Went on. I had obviously some training I had to do. It takes about a year. And then, but I, I arrived on my uh, submarine in San Diego in December of '76 and stayed with it until uh, January of 1980. 
But yeah, it was a USS permit. It was a fast attack submarine. Ooh. And uh, to this day, I still have, uh, I'm still in contact with my fellow junior officers on that submarine. It was a great kind of engineering learning laboratory. We did a lot of fun things on that submarine. Uh, some I can talk about, some I can't. That's what, <laughs> you know, when you're a 22, 23-year-old and yeah. you've got responsibilities for starting up a nuclear reactor, it's pretty heavy stuff. So yeah. And tooling around in the Pacific Ocean. That's brilliant. Looking for other submarines is a lot of fun. Well, on that note, that um, completely skewed note, I, I want to thank you for your time and uh, your service towards the sport. It's been a pleasure. Now, just before we part ways, if someone out there is listening and they are inspired to become a referee, you know, I think we all agree the, the sport needs as many fantastic refs as we can get. How should someone go about becoming a certified ref? Well, I'll make it very easy. I've said this uh, in several different forums, but we have a well-established series of referee trainers around the country. Uh, I'll make it very easy. I, I know all of them, well, most of them, many of them personally. And so if somebody wants to start down the referee path, all they have to do is send an email to me at my email address, mpeifer, P-E-I-F-E-R, at usapickleball.org. Uh, mpeifer at usapickable.org and I'll make sure that you send me the email tell me what state you live in so that is important for me to get you in contact with the right trainer okay and we'll take it from there and it'll be a very straightforward process beautiful well that sounds easy and uh, fingers crossed that the game is back up in full flight if for no other reason that players get to see you doing your thing as best as possible well, thanks, Maureen. <laughs> Earlier I said, and I mean it, uh, we're all waiting to see when you come back on the scene. It'd be great to see you again. Oh, much appreciated, man. I will do my best. All right, Mark, thank you again for your time. My pleasure. Take care of yourself and stay safe. Thanks. You too, Morgan. Cheers, mate. Bye. As always, this podcast is powered by Selkirk Sport and the new series of paddles, The Vanguard. I'm Morgan Evans, and this has been More or Less Pickleball. Did you ever fire a missile? Can you tell me? Could you tell me if you did?